Well, hello, Hope Church. Uh, thanks so much for having me in your, your home here today. Uh, maybe it's in your car. Maybe you're just listening to this as a podcast. Thank you uh, for checking us out. Uh, these are unprecedented times. Uh, in 12 hours time, our non-essential services are shutting down. Uh, so much has changed already in this last week. Uh, and, I, and so as I was asked to speak uh, this message, which you will probably hear in a month's time, uh, I wanted to speak on something timeless. I wanted to speak on something that's consistent. I wanted to speak on something that uh, is relevant to, to us as humans, uh, as creatures created in God's image, whether 2,000 years ago, whether it's today or 2,000 years in the future. And, and that subject was worry. And, and I don't know about you, but I've been experiencing a lot of worry. I experience a lot of worry uh, with at home with my kids. Uh, I see my wife uh, wrestling through what it looks like to, to be a believer in this day and age, but care for a family and, and care for our neighbors. Uh, some of you are worried about jobs. Some of you are worried about financial security. Some of you are worried about uh, what life is going to look like and when this whole thing is going to die down. Will my kids go back to school? Will they continue to develop? How am I going to manage another day locked up in the house with these rascals? We worry. And this is not news. This is not uh, profound. This, this is something that's been consistent from the very beginning. It's something that Jesus was incredibly empathetic towards, something that Jesus spoke at great lengths about. And it's something that he here today, through his word, can speak into. Now, I realize worry is a bit of a, uh, a common subject right now. A lot of churches are talking about worry. Uh, we see it all over the news. We see it in the looks of politicians as they're giving press conferences. A lot has been made of this subject, and, and my intent is not to outdo them. Uh, my intent is not even to be super polished and professional here with you this morning. It's just to convey what I think God's word says on the subject and hopefully encourage you at home, uh, whatever today looks like, whatever our world is facing as we watch this today, uh, how can we have confidence in what the Lord is doing uh, and not succumb to worry? And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. As I was kind of preparing this and, and getting ready, and we're all kind of scrambling, trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we, uh, how do we kind of get all these messages together to get them home to you guys while we can't meet here physically? Uh, I was recalling a time in my own life uh, when I was incredibly worried. Uh, some of you were parents. Some of you have young kids. Uh, I became a dad on September 22nd, uh, 2014 at about 2.15 in the morning. And, and those of you who have kids, you know the rush of what it's like uh, to uh, the buildup to, to having them, the concern about am I ready, am I ready for this responsibility, am I ready to care for this soul, uh, can I do this? And then your wife goes into labor. And, and, and not to make my suffering at all comparable to what my wife went through, uh, but it's real now. It's coming. This, this child is, is within a day from being in front of me. And I remember standing in the delivery room next to my wife's head and encouraging her and, and, and making sure I'm staying well up by her head. And while the doctor and the, and the team are down there and they're, they're catching, we didn't know what we were having at the time. They're going to catch this baby. And I remember as, as uh, what we eventually found out was our son was being born. You know, we, he, he was born, and then right away there was this look of concern on the doctor's face. 
And as a first-time parent, you're waiting for so long for this child. You're, you're, you've created a nursery, you've had showers, you've got gifts, you've got a whole life waiting at home that you're dying to get used to, you're dying to get accustomed to, and then your very first moment, very un-Hollywood-like, is one of immediate concern. And I didn't even recognize it right away. I just thought, geez, why, why the concerned look? And sure enough, there's now a panic button going out. A code pink is being called. There's now 12 other people in the room with us. And I realized about a minute later, I was like, wait a second. He's not making any noise. We still don't know what we've had. Have we, we have had a boy? Have we had a girl? Uh, you know, they've just taken this child, they'd put him on a table, and now there's a dozen people whispering amongst themselves working. And my wife is in shock. She's shaking and she's crying. And she's asking me, Mark, Mark, why, why is it not making any noise? Three, four minutes go by, and, and suddenly we're beginning the realizations that, you know, everything maybe we thought was going to happen is now going to look totally different. Everything we thought we had planned, everything we thought we had within our control has now been blown out of the water. Five, six minutes pass, still no noise. We're crying and I'm whispering and I'm praying in my wife's ear and I'm, I'm trying to tell her, I'm giving her platitudes like, relax, it'll be okay, don't worry. And that does nothing, husband's quick tip. Just telling your wife to relax is incredibly counterproductive. But in that moment, that's all I had. And at about the seven-minute mark, we looked up, and, and the doctor who was caring for my wife still while she had just delivered, uh, you know, he catches me making eye contact with him, and he just kind of says, he's like, don't worry. Uh, my son was way more purple than your guy right now, and, and today he's in college. And I remember just thinking in that moment, thinking, how can you be so calm? How can you be so collected? How can you be so put together? How are you not at all worried? How can you tell me, don't worry? And at the eight minute mark, thankfully, by God's grace, we heard the scream, we heard that noise that, that now does not stop almost six years later. I still, uh, as much as it can get on my nerves at time, I still hear that scream, I hear that giggle, I hear that laughter, I hear that running up the stairs, and I am always brought back to this moment where there was an eight minute span where he was silent. I was worried. By God's grace, he was okay, and six, six hours later, he was out at NICU and back in our arms. And life carried on. And you know what? It wasn't until weeks later after we had settled into our routine where we had kind of established all that was happening. We figured out how life was going to look like. We got in a rhythm, we got in a routine, and we realized something about our doctor. He could be so calm, he could be so confident for two reasons. Number one, he had past experience. He'd been there before. He had seen the miracle of modern medicine at work in children born with difficulties. And the second thing was, he had faith in the team that was working. You see, it was amazing. While they had all these people working on our son, um, he was able to be in communication with them while still working on my wife. He wasn't there, he wasn't present, but through experience, through practice, he was able to know what they were doing. He knew what he could be able to do, and then he also had the faith, he had the trust in the team to do what it was necessary to keep our boy safe. And I think the reality is for us here this morning is that we need to do the same thing with the Lord when we are worried. 
We need to recall his goodness. We need to recall his faithfulness. We need to be able to look back in our lives and establish times in history where he came through, where he was successful. And then we need to ask ourselves, who am I trusting? And what am I trusting right now? Do I trust my Lord and Savior? Do I trust God to provide for me the finances that I need to make it through this pandemic? Do I trust God that he's going to keep my family safe? Do I trust God that even in the event if a family member is ill and is sick, he is still going to work that out for his good purposes? What are we trusting? What are we worshiping? What is our faith put in? Tough questions we need to ask ourselves and, and exactly what Jesus is going to talk to us in Luke chapter 12. And so some context for us, uh, starting in chapter 12, uh, looking at verse 13, Jesus has been teaching on the hillside, on the coastline of the Sea of Galilee. He's talking to uh, blue-collar people. He's talking to farmers. He's talking to fishermen. He's talking to tradesmen. He's talking to peasants. These are people who live and die with their environment. They live and die based on whether it rains, based on tides, based on what they catch. These are people who depend on factors that they cannot control to survive. And up until this point, he's been talking to them and asking them one simple question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the gospel? What are you going to do with the good news? What are you worshiping? And we're told in verse 13, he, he's rudely interrupted by someone we don't even know the gender. We don't know the name of this individual. Just someone has interrupted Jesus in the middle of his teaching. And so if you look there, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus pretty tersely responds to him and says, I'm not going there. It's not for me to judge. This is not my business. This is not what I'm here to do. But you imagine the audacity that's needed to interrupt the greatest teacher this world has ever seen with a personal problem. Someone had left an inheritance evidently and this guy was worried he wasn't gonna get his share and so he interrupts Jesus and says, can you, can you fix this? Can you intervene? And Jesus cuts him off right away and says, I'm not gonna get into that. And he immediately changes directions. He starts talking about, and he tells us this parable opposite of what this man has. He's wanting something that he can't have. He now is going to talk about someone who had all they could possibly want. He reads, and in verse uh, 14 down to verse 21, he's talking about someone who uh, was incredibly rich, someone who had uh, benefited greatly from a harvest, so much so that he had to build larger barns and larger storehouses. Uh, but the, the point of all this was not that he was going to be generous, not that he was going to share it, not that he was going to care for other people. We're told that he wanted to relax. He wanted to eat, drink, be merry. And so we have conflicting people, but with the same common problem, they're worried and they're worried because they're greedy. We had the man who interrupt because he was coveting something he couldn't have. We have the man in the parable who was greedy because he was satisfied in what he had, but he was stingy in how he was stewarding it. And Jesus now pivots from the greater concept of what are you doing with Jesus, and he's now gonna talk about one common theme going forward, and it's avoid greed at all costs. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't give in to that temptation. It always leads to comparison and it always leads to despair. 
Don't be greedy. And Jesus again begins to turn the tide a little bit and, and remember his audience. He's talking to poor people and he's gonna walk with them and he's gonna go through them and he's gonna begin to show through his love and through what he's about that we can have confidence in him and not fear what we don't have or not fear that we need to hoard what we have because we'll run out. We don't have to do those things because we have something so much more profound in Jesus. And so look at the text. This is verse 22 now, Jesus begins teaching and he's gonna uh, begin by setting the premise for this entire lesson that he's gonna teach them. He's gonna take the same application he just made, but to a different group of people. It says in verse 22, he said to his disciples, so he's no longer talking to this covetous man or woman who interrupted him. He turns to his disciples and he says, therefore tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, what Jesus begins to do is he exposes the, the foundation of what worry is, is. It's a question of what are you worshiping? What are you doing with Jesus? Life is worth so much more than the clothing that's on you. It's worth so much more than the money in your bank account. You are so precious in Jesus' eyes. And he says to them, what are you doing with my son? What are you doing with Jesus? What are you worshiping? Are you worshiping what you can't have? Are you worshiping the fact that, that you have something and you're unwilling to share? Jesus says, don't depend on those things. You don't need those things to be happy. Life is so much more than food and clothing. The argument he's making really here is your life is not actually your own. Don't worry because your life's not yours to begin with. And this is the overriding principle he's gonna talk about through this whole passage as he weaves in and out uh, the notion of his kingdom and what he provides for us and the promises he makes for us. It's all built around this notion that your life is not your own. Your life is at the mercy of the creator. And so don't worry, have faith. Trust that he is faithful. Trust that you can recall from your your own life experiences where he came through. Remember his faithfulness and put your trust in the right thing. Your life is not your own. Tough words for people who are living and dying by their circumstances on whether it rains this year. And Jesus is saying, what I can offer you is so much more valuable than your crops. Do you trust me? Do you worship me or are you fixated on your circumstances. And so he gives us uh, four reasons for why we can have confidence, for reasons why our lives are not our own. And he starts right away by looking at the ravens. And so look at verse 24, it says, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they neither uh, storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are ye, of you than the, than the birds? And so the first point is here this morning is we know our life is not our own is because it's, it's primarily God who sustains us. Remember, these are scavengers. These are birds who they're not out killing things to live. They happen across roadkill and that's how they eat. They live dependently. They live by what God provides. They live by what happens in their circumstance. 
And these are tough words. Don't lose the empathy. Jesus is addressing these things because it's incredibly important. And, and I'm not trying to minimize that all the fears that you might have, but the reality is this. At the end of the day, it's God who sustains us. You and I have no control. The ravens have no control over whether or not they're going to eat that day. It's because God sustains them. And if God sustains them, how much more will he sustain us? We are so much more valuable than ravens. We are so much more valuable than other created beings. We were made in his image, Genesis tells us. We are made with incredible importance, and we were worth dying for. You see, when we look at things through the lens of eternity, suddenly we see that some of these worries begin to dissipate. Because life is not ours. It's not our own. It's because of God. It's because of what he provides. He gives and he takes away. He is who sustains us. Look at what he talks about next. Not only can, do we know our life is not ours because God sustains us. The second thing we know, our life is not our own because it's God who does the impossible. Look at verse 25. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And so what Jesus does here, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes, interesting play on words, something that I think would be fairly significant to most of us. You know, I think if we wanted to live longer, we would want that. We would want to live longer. If I was going to die tomorrow and I knew that, I would want to add as many hours to my life as possible to see my kids grow up. Big things. It's a big thing to have a longer life. But for some reason, Jesus says it's, it's a small thing. If, if then you're not able to do this small thing, why are you anxious about the rest? What he's saying is what we see as big in contrast to God's might is very small. God, as we're going to see in just a moment, wants to give us good things. He wants to add to us, not subtract but our worship needs to be central to him. It needs to be focused on him. It is him who sustains us. It is him who does the impossible. He is the only one who can able to add or subtract from life. We don't have that kind of control. And control is so fundamental to our worry. When we take our eyes off the Lord, we, that's called unbelief. Mark 9 talks about this. There's a Roman centurion who lays his boy before Jesus, and, and Jesus questions his faith in him. And this, this soldier says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's when we take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to think about other things, uh, we fall into unbelief. And James 4 tells us this, that whenever we fall into unbelief, we give birth to pride. We give birth to thinking primarily about ourselves and what we want and James 4 tells that we fight, we even kill for the things that we want so badly. Why? Because we worry, because we fear, because we're selfish, we are greedy. Jesus says, avoid greed at all costs. It is him who sustains us. It is him who can do the impossible. He can do the big and the small things far outside our control. Here's the third reason we know life is not our own. It's because it's God who actually gives us better things. Look at verse uh, 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And again, <laughs> oh, you of little faith. Skip down to verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, if Jesus has already alluded to birds flying in the air, they're in the outdoors. He's now directing them to the ground, and he's directing them to these wild flowers, these beautiful flowers, flowers that uh, he likens to Solomon and says, in fact, they're even more beautiful than the richest man on the planet. They're so much beautiful, but like Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Things are temporary, but listen, if we focus in on the Lord, if we worship the Lord. He wants to clothe us in something far more valuable than money, far more valuable than earthly fabrics. He wants to give us himself. He wants to clothe us in himself. It's, it's, it's an allusion to his grace that when you and I, when we profess Jesus as Lord and we keep bearing fruit with repentance, we will one day stand before the Lord We'll stand before him, and even though we are dirty, even though we are sinful people, what God sees us is not a dirty, rotten sinner. He sees his son. Eternity brings perspective. God gives us such better things than the material things that we have our eyes set on. He sees his son. He sees Jesus. He gives us better things. He seeks to add these things to us. You see that at the end of verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You get the big things right. You get the big rocks in place and these little things. It might seem big to us, but these little things, God will work in. God will provide. God will work through it. It's God who sustains. It's God who does the impossible. It's God who wants to give us good things. And here's the last one. It's God who's worthy of our worship. Look at verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Verse 31 talks about seeking his kingdom, and God will provide these small things that we need day to day. Verse 34 talks about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. God is calling us to have faith in him, to trust in him. It's a powerful line when you consider where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, we focus on things in our world. We focus on money, everything in our world. You look at newspapers, you look at internet ads, everything is somehow linked to money. But what God says is don't worry about material things. Don't worry about things that are not relevant. You can't take it with you. Jesus, even going back to that parable back in verses 16 through 21, he actually says as though he were speaking to this character in the parable, he says, fool, tonight your life is required of you. Who's going to own your stuff? 
you and I don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But I can assure you this, that God cares. He is not phased. He's empathetic. And he desperately wants to give you good things. He desperately wants to prove himself worthy, to add these things to you. But our hearts have to be in the right place. And so some things to consider, some things to uh, think about. Number one is this, there's no shortage of things to worry about. You and I, uh, we don't have to look far to find something to worry about. I worry uh, a fair bit. People think I'm a sociopath. People think I don't have emotions, but inside I actually worry quite a bit. Uh, my wife can be able to tell just by my posture how I'm sitting based uh, what's on my mind. She knows that about me. There's no shortage of things to worry about. In this day and age, hours before our city is going to be partially shut down, there is cause for concern. There's no shortage of things to worry about. And worry is, is nagging. It's with you when you wake up. It's, it's with you when you go to bed. Worry is tough. But its significance is not lost on the Lord. Hebrews tells us that we have an empathetic high priest. Jesus hears your worry. He's aware of your worry. He, he's concerned for you, not in that he's unable to provide for you, but that he sees a better life for you. Trust in him and these things will be added to you. I think the second thing we got to consider as well is not just uh, we understand that worry is a common human experience. I think we need to ask ourselves, why are we worrying? Not in a cyclical way. You know, I'm worried I'm not going to get married. Um, well, why are you worried? Well, because I'm not going to get married. You know, that's not worry just doesn't appear like we've already talked about. In James 4, there's, there's steps that lead us to fear. We fear because we are worshiping something other than the Lord. And so what are the idols in your life? What are the things that you're hoarding right now? Maybe you're like the covetous person who interrupted Jesus, who desperately wants more food, who wants more finances, who wants more toilet paper. Maybe you're the satisfied, greedy, self-involved man in the parable, you know, who has a lot but has no intent on being generous or caring for those around or maybe you're the person Jesus just describes in our text this morning. Maybe you're the, the anxious worrier. You're the person who's worried because you are worshiping something else. We need to figure out what that is. Why are we worshiping that thing? We need to repent of that and come back to the Lord and make him the focal point of our, of our life. I would also say this, there are plenty of reasons why we don't need to worry. Just like this text gives us plenty of reasons to prove why our life is not our own, so we don't need to worry. There's also other promises God makes us in this text. We'll go through them real quick, five of them. Number one, your life is worth more than food and clothing. Understand the sacrifice that was afforded you so you could have eternal life. Understand the gravity of what God did to save you, to see his only son murdered for you, for me. 
Don't minimalize the significance of that and boil your life down to something as futile as money and clothing. God wants to add things to you. You seek his kingdom. You get the big things in priority. You get the big things in place. You set your sights on him. He will sustain you. He will do amazing things. He wants to give you good things. He is worthy of our worship for that reason. But your life is not what you own. And so a helpful exercise right now in your own heart might be to ask yourself and fill in this blank, Lord, my life is not worth more than whatever you're worried about. Name it. Say it to God. Go to him with it. Here's the second thing. Look around. Just like that doctor in the room talking to my wife and I, talking about his son who apparently didn't breathe longer than our little guy, still got his college degree, still a member of society, functioning well and participating. He had experience. He looked around. He could see the evidence in his life of where success had happened. Maybe you and I need to recall God's faithfulness to us here this morning. Like ravens, like lilies, look around. Remember, life is so short. What are you going to make of it? Who are you going to worship? Our life is so valuable. God has been faithful. Here's the third thing. Worrying actually doesn't accomplish anything. There's another reason not to worry. (laughs) Very simple, very logical. It doesn't change anything. The language Jesus uses in this text is actually a little bit ironic. He says, if you were to translate it literally, and who of you by worrying can add a cubit to their life? It's interesting because your life is measured in time. A cubit, which is roughly 18 inches, is, is a measurement of length. And so the statement is kind of a bit of an oxymoron in that it doesn't make sense. It's apples and oranges. Who of you can add 18 inches to your life? It's impossible. It's dumb. Why worry about it? If you can't do that little thing, why worry at all? God has you. He loves you. Don't worry. Corey Ten Boom, this, this quote's been all over Facebook. You've probably seen it already. It says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Some of you are tired. I'd encourage you to read Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17 this afternoon. It says, the Lord will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Some of you have a unique opportunity now where you're going to have some forced quiet in your life. Spend that time wisely. Refresh and remind yourself of God's love for you. Let eternity bring perspective to what you are worrying about. Rejoice and be fed in that love. Be encouraged in that. Know that the Lord loves you so much he sings over you. You don't need to worry. A few more for us. It's God's world. At the end of the day, we don't need to worry because it's not a kingdom that we are building here on earth. It's about seeking God's kingdom. Verse 31 says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. We don't need to focus on the things that the rest of our world is. 
We don't need to focus on what they prioritize. We've seen the fruit of it. It leads to just more greed. Don't focus on that stuff. Don't think about that stuff. It's building kingdoms here. You are, you are the king of nothing, and it's because we have a creator who sustains us. He is the king. He is the one who, who will initiate his kingdom. And if we seek that, there is so much more laid up for us in heaven. There is so much more abundance found in the person of Jesus Christ than there is in anything we can stockpile right now. Worship Jesus. It's not about us. It's God's world. And the last thing I would say is this. Another reason we don't need to worry is because when we worship him, when we worship Jesus, we see the abundance we have and it leads us to be generous to others. He talks about this at the very end. You look at verse 32 through 34. He says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's been so neat to watch in our street. We can't talk like we normally do, but I've had conversations with, about Jesus with my neighbors by shouting across the road. <laughs> People need hope these days. People need truth. Yes, we need material things. Yes, we need food. And by the way, nowhere in any of this is Jesus assuming that we don't work, that we don't steward what he's given us well. The point is, is that that's not what we worship. But people need hope. We can care for people. We've seen Facebook groups appear on our street and surrounding neighborhoods where people will go to the store. Maybe they see they have an excess of something and so they'll say, hey, on my front porch, I have this item. If you need it, it's yours. Come get it. It's the honor system. It takes a lot of trust. But it's been neat to see how our community has come together as people are willing to give sacrificially out of a seen abundance in their life, in a, in a material way, they are caring for others. And I would argue, Christians, we have so much more than food and clothing and money. We have the gospel. We have the truth that Jesus died for us. That if we believe in him, repent of our sins, we will be saved. We will have that eternal lens that gives us so much hope. We don't need to worry. And so what do we do with this worry? And I'll, I'll close with this. I've had a lot of people sit in my office wondering, you know, how do I actually stop worrying? I get my life is not my own for these reasons. I get that I don't have to worry because of these promises, but functionally, how do I stop worrying? Very quickly, I'll leave you with these things. Number one, name it. Don't just sit in irritability, don't just sit with pent-up frustration, don't just keep struggling, name it, understand it, figure out what it is that is worrying you. Number two, identify the triggers. Some of you get irritable, some of you get headaches, some of you get pains and knots, some of you start shutting down, some of you start distancing from others. When you see these triggers, get out in front of it. Recognize what's happening. Don't allow yourself to succumb to that worry. Number three, ask yourself the question, why am I anxious? What are my idols? What are the things that I'm worshiping other than the Lord? Number four, what better reason does Jesus give me not to worry? Be in the word. Know truth. 
Know what God promises you. Don't just accept the platitude. You don't need to worry. Jesus loves you. There are tangible promises made in Scripture. We don't have to worry because Scripture tells me this. Educate yourselves. See how rich the blessings are you have in Jesus. I would say number five, go to God. Pray through those things. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your greediness, your selfishness, that pride. And understand there's a gracious God who's going to restore you, who wants to bless you, who wants to add to your life. And lastly, give sacrificially. Just like this text concludes, we will be measured based on what we value. And if we value others, both for their desperate need for the gospel or maybe for their desperate need for food or for clothing, for gas for their vehicles, money in the bank, whatever it is, that's the measure of someone whose heart understands it's far better to give than to receive. Why? Because we have the ultimate example in Jesus. So give sacrificially. Be practical. Think about something other than yourself. Church, these are unprecedented times. They're scary. Certainly ample reason to worry. But I have confidence that neither heights nor depths nor angels nor demons nor princes or principalities, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Be encouraged by that today. God is faithful. God is in control. It's all about him. Let's stand back and watch what he does. I'm praying for you. We love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you that our lives are not our own. God, we forfeited them when we chose to follow you. God, we seek to take up that same cross to live a life of humility, to live a life of uh, gratitude and contentment for what you have provided for us. Forgive us for when we can become prideful, when we can become conceited, when we can become greedy. God, help us to recognize the promises you make, the abundance in which you seek to give. Uh, God, when we have our eyes firmly fixed on you, when we see all these little things that you seek to add to us. God, would we take those blessings and use them to benefit others? Would we think... Uh, not poorly of ourselves, but just think of ourselves less often and consider the needs of others, whether it's their gospel needs or their physical needs. Lord, thank you that my inheritance in you is not dictated by earthly terms. It's determined by the creator himself. Help me to trust you, Lord. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.